This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest has over 35 years practicing in immigration law, a professor of immigration practice, teaching immigration and asylum law at Cornell Law School, and is the co-author of the Leading 21 volume treatise, Immigration Law and Procedure, Stephen Yale Lair. It's a pleasure to have you on. Glad to be here. Thank you. And of course, a returning guest, lead researcher, Luke Bianco. How are you doing? Doing well. Very glad to be here as well. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Stephen, love to talk about your current programs that you're working on right now in clinics at Cornell Law. You're, you're one of the heads at the Asylum and Convention Against Torture Clinic in the Migration and Human Rights Program. Um, could you talk about those, those programs and uh, what you guys are doing there? Sure. We started the Asylum Appeals Project almost 20 years ago, where we started by taking appeals of people who were detained and did not have immigration lawyers to assist them at the immigration judge level to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is an administrative board in the Department of Justice. Um, and we have students that we supervise who work on these cases. They get excellent briefs and our success rate is very high compared to the average win rate at the Board of Immigration Appeals. Over the years, we've expanded the clinic and now in addition to appeals at the Board of Immigration Appeals, we also handle appeals in the federal courts. Right now, for example, we have appeals pending in the second, fifth and 11th circuits. So that clinic has been very successful and many students after they graduate, even if they don't practice immigration law, have continued to do pro bono appeals for immigrants in their law firms. The other thing that we've started is a migration and human rights program at the law school and that combines Cornell Law School's longstanding expertise in international human rights with our growing expertise on immigration law. Uh, we do a variety of things. We sponsor events, uh, we write reports, and we have about four, uh, about eight or nine people now who are engaged in migration and international human rights at the law school. We call ourselves the Dirty Immigration Lawyers Group um, because <laughs> former Attorney General Jeff Sessions <laughs> lashed out at attorneys uh, who practiced asylum law in 2017, saying that they were dirty lawyers to, for their efforts to represent asylum seekers. And we took that on as a badge of honor and we even have t-shirts. So we're doing a lot there at the law school, but we're also doing a lot more broadly at Cornell. Two years ago, Cornell started a campus-wide initiative on migration. And it focuses not just on migration of people, but also plants and animals and viruses. Mm. Um, and we call ourselves the Migration's Grand Challenge. I am one of the two faculty fellows helping to lead that across Cornell. And we fund various research grants uh, around Cornell on migration in an interdisciplinary and multi-species way. We also have a new podcast series that we started this spring we have various speakers who come into Cornell to give talks. And so we're trying to establish a migration center at Cornell to make Cornell one of the leading international universities on the study of migration broadly. And the fact that we're doing this both interspecies and across different uh, units at Cornell makes it somewhat unique compared to other immigration 
and migration centers around the world. So we're pretty busy. Yeah, um, actually, I'm very, I'm pretty interested in that. So interspecies migration, uh, could you give us like an example of what that would be and what you guys would work in that area, like certain plants that, that migrate to a, a different region and how you track that migration? What would that yeah, look like? Yeah, so for example, climate change. Uh, we had an interesting talk this spring by somebody who studies climate change uh, in Central America. And by mapping temperature changes and climate changes in Central America, and then overlapping that with migration uh, from Central America, she's been able to show with her colleagues that really climate change has been a big factor moving people from Central America to the United States. We think about war and poverty, and that's certainly contributing factors, but climate change is a big problem as well, too. We also think about climate change as it affects the movement of butterflies and birds. Um, birds migration patterns have changed over the last 30 years, according to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, because of climate change. And they're coming to the United States and Canada earlier than they used to because it's now warmer than it used to. Uh, as they migrate up from Central America, to, uh, where they winter, to Canada and the United States. And then they are leaving Canada and the United States later in the fall to go back down to Central America for their winter grounds. So this combination of looking at migration, not just from one species, but across species, uh, proves to be very useful in understanding that. We have a professor at the vet school who studies the movement of large animals like elephants and how borders, uh, country borders with fences are preventing or hindering their normal migration patterns. Um, we also are studying um, through the lab of ornithology and other people at Cornell, uh, what's happening with the capital city of Jakarta in Indonesia. That city is slowly sinking because of climate change and rising seawaters and they plan to move the capital city to another place in Indonesia, but that's going to affect a lot of natural wildlife and fauna there. Um, and so we're studying that from a multi-species perspective. And finally, to go back to human migration, currently doing some research with a professor at Weill Cornell Medical School in New York City on immigrant patients um, and how recent changes and restrictions on what public benefits immigrants can receive is hindering their ability to get good medical care in at least a Weill Cornell Hospital. And we're trying to quantify that. And if it works out well, maybe we'll get funding to take that research nationally. So there's a lot of different things by looking at migration more broadly that I think uh, Cornell is doing in an innovative way. Yeah, it sounds like you you have your your hand in a lot of different pots as far as like the intersectionality of, of migration, which is really fascinating. Um, I wanted to circle back to your your anecdote about the dirty immigration lawyers. Uh, I thought that was that was clever. Um, your interaction or um, reaction to to former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. My understanding is it's not the only time that you've interacted with elected officials. Um, and that you've also had a track record of testifying before Congress. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and uh, what you might have learned from it? Sure. I'm, I've, immigration and law has always been complex. Some people have called immigration law the second most complex area of law, second only to tax law. I would argue it's probably equally as complex as, as tax law, maybe now with recent political changes, even more complex. Um, so it's hard for <clears throat> Congress and the average American to understand immigration law. It's a vast system. 
um, where you're trying to have rules that apply with general applicability, but everybody's individual situation is different. And it ranges from business immigration to people fleeing persecution, family migration, et cetera. And so I've been fortunate enough to testify before Congress a half a dozen times um, on you know, what immigration policy changes might do in terms of how it would affect the average person. Um, and I've talked about primarily work visas because in my private practice, I've done primarily business visa issues. So I've talked about H-1Bs, uh, which is for professional temporary workers. I've talked about L1 intracompany transferees. And I've also testified about EB5 immigrant investors before Congress. But in each case, um, I've tried to explain uh, and to tell members of Congress in plain English how their proposed legislation would impact um, individual immigrants. I'm also a non-resident fellow at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington, DC. MPI is sort of the premier immigration think tank in the United States. Um, and I've worked with Doris Meissner, who is a former commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service on a number of reports ranging from how we treat uh, military veterans um, to currently how we should reform our immigration court system because we have a backlog of 1.3 million cases in the immigration court system. So both by testifying before Congress and by writing think tank reports, I'm trying to influence policy. As another example, last summer, I and a postdoc at Cornell Law School put out a report on why the United States should consider an immigration points system to select certain economic migrants to the United States. Canada and Australia and other countries have successfully used point systems um, to attract the best and the brightest. And I think it's time for the United States to consider that as well too. President Trump uh, argued that we should have a point system, but his proposed point system would have been so restrictive that 98% of Americans would not have qualified if they were trying to immigrate to the United States. So we tried to come up with a system that we thought would be fair, but also would enhance uh, the economic contributions of immigrants if they do come to the United States. So far, that particular proposal has not gone anywhere, but you never know. Congress may take up comprehensive immigration reform legislation again someday. And if they do, maybe my prior testimony or the immigration point system report will be considered then. Right. Uh, so let's get into that a little bit deeper. You talked about like your work on uh, EB-5s and H-1Bs. You launched the Trade Association Invest in the U.S. And uh, so could you speak a little bit about that process and what role the EB-5 visa plays in U.S. immigration? Sure. As background, EB-5 stands for the employment-based fifth category of immigrant visas. And Congress created this category in 1990. And there's actually two types of EB-5 visas. One is for individual investors who bring money to the United States and directly create 10 jobs through their own companies. And that part of the program was enacted in 1990, but really did not take off. And even today, fewer than 10% of EB-5 investors are getting green cards based on their own direct investments. So Congress in 1992 said, let's set up a pilot program to allow investors to come in and invest indirectly through other companies, through so-called regional centers. Um, and that program was slow to take off, 
But in 2008 and 2009, when the economic recession hit and traditional sources of capital dried up, many companies in the United States realized that there was this program here and the EB-5 regional center program really took off. Uh, now more than 90% of all EB-5 investors each year and get their green cards based on investments indirectly through regional centers. The problem with the EB-5 regional center program is that it is a pilot program and has to be renewed periodically by Congress. And um, so I formed a trade association of these regional centers to try to band together and work collectively to show to Congress the economic value of the regional center program so that they would renew it. And Congress has renewed the regional center part of the EB-5 program continuously, um, but every couple of years, you know, it needs to be renewed. Uh, currently, the program is technically due to expire June 30th. And so the trade association that I started is, you know, lobbying Congress uh, to show, again, the economic value of the EB-5 regional center program. So I saw a need there because each regional center uh, could do its own lobbying, but we were more effective if we banded together and created a trade association. Now it's got you know, a, a regular staff and a, a professional executive director and its own in-house lobbyists. And so it's much bigger, but I was fortunate enough to realize that we needed to have a trade association and at least got it off the ground before other people who are professionals at running trade associations uh, were able to take it over and grow it even bigger. You mentioned that it kind of really took off after or during the 2008, 2009 recession. Um, which might be one way in which the immigration landscape has kind of shifted over the course of your, your 35 years. Are there other ways, both positive and negative, that you've seen the immigration environment kind of drastically change over the course of your career? Oh, my gosh. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's always been hard to get immigration through Congress. Um, because it's controversial. Back in the 1980s, there would be some Republicans who were for immigration because they wanted cheap labor and some Republicans who didn't like immigration. And there were some Democrats who loved immigration, um, but other Democrats who thought that immigrants would hurt labor unions. And so it was always hard to go across party lines to forge a compromise. In 1990, Congress was able to enact uh, an overhaul of our legal immigration system, but Congress has been unable to enact any changes since then. And the global economy has changed dramatically in the last 31 years, but our immigration system has stagnated and that's caused more problems and more workarounds that uh, people have tried to do to figure out how to get qualified immigrants into the United States under these old rules. We've also had an increasing politicalization of everything in Congress, but especially immigration. Um, and now uh, immigration has been perceived more as a political party issue. And it's sort of perceived that if you're a Democrat, you're pro-immigration. And if you're a Republican, you're against immigration. And that's an oversimplification but that's made it even harder than before to get immigration through Congress. And then the former president Trump, of course, made immigration his rallying cry for why he needed to be president to stop immigration. And we had a decline in immigration over the four years of the Trump presidency. 
so that the immigration system has become even more broken. And you see that in a variety of ways in terms of the 1.3 million cases in the immigration court backlog. You see that in the terms of the numbers of people trying to get into the United States uh, legally or illegally from Central America. You see that in terms of labor shortages and uh, employers saying, I don't have enough US help and I need to get higher uh, immigrants, but I don't have uh, enough visas in the system to be able to help me out. So we really need to have an overhaul, but Congress is so politicized that I fear that comprehensive immigration reform is not gonna be achievable um, this year or next, maybe after the midterms in 2022. And so if anything is going to happen in Congress, it's gonna to have to be smaller bite-sized legislation, such as perhaps legalizing the status of the 700,000 DACA recipients, which seems to have more political viability than some other immigration proposals. So you've definitely had a, a rich, rich career, 35 years testifying before Congress, uh, creating different programs with the Human Rights Program and the Convention Against Torture Clinic. Um, now you're, you're, you're a professor. So with your experience and your know-how of all that you've accumulated over this time, what advice would you give to attorneys looking to make a, a tangible impact on the immigration field as you have over this time? Well, I think anyone who practices immigration law is making a tangible impact because you are helping real people. When I started out right after graduating from law school and then clerking for a federal judge, I went to a large law firm and I did both international trade work and immigration work. Um, and I just felt like I was making more of an impact with my immigration clients than my international trade clients because they were getting green cards or they were getting asylum as a result. Whereas, you know, an in international trade, it's a question of whether one multinational company successfully sued another multinational company. And who really cares about that except multinational companies? So I think, you know, whether you're doing business immigration or asylum, you're helping real people. And at the end of the day, if you do a good job, you're allowing new people to immigrate to the United States and contribute economically and culturally to the United States. So I think being a regular immigration lawyer is a tangible impact in and of itself. But you can also do things other ways in terms of, you don't have to testify before Congress, but you can talk in your local community about the benefit of immigration, or you can <clears throat> uh, you know, work on refugee organizations in your community to make sure that refugees are successfully resettled and assimilated in the United States. One thing that I'm really proud of that really is not immigration law at all was that I uh, did a book called Green Card Stories back in 2012, where we decided to put together a coffee table style book of 50 immigrants who came to the United States recently. And they weren't like you know rich or famous immigrants. They were sort of just interesting immigrants. And we sent a photographer and a journalist out on the road for a year to interview various immigrants and we put together their compelling life stories along with award-winning photographs and put them in a book. And the purpose of the book was basically just to show how rich and diverse immigrants are and how these people have contributed to the United States in a variety of ways. Um, so and that's another way that immigration lawyers, I think, can be an imp have an impact on the United States because some people think of immigrants with a capital I, you know, all immigrants are either good or or bad, but really every immigrant is a human being. 
And every human being has an interesting story to tell. And I just happen to focus on those individuals who weren't born in the United States. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to have been born here, but there are lots of people who want to come here. And if they can come here legally under our system, then we should welcome them and help them achieve their greatness, just like we want to achieve uh, greatness for everybody who's born in the United States. And we thank you for being such a great advocate and, and resource for those people. Uh, Luke, send us home. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate hearing your story. And I, I think our listeners will, will definitely benefit from your longstanding experience in the field and the various things that you have contributed. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, hope to stay in touch and keep following the work that you're, you're doing on campus and otherwise. Great. Well, I really enjoy doing it. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.